I hope this morning you have brought your Believe book with you this morning. Have you? Have it? You hold it up for just a minute. We're going to be referring to that, reading from it actually this morning. Uh, this is uh, largely, mostly the Word of God, arranged by topic, arranged by uh, subject matter. We're going through in the Believe series. Uh, sometimes there's little fillers in between that just kind of link one passage to another, but most of these are passages right from the Word of God and the New International Version. So hope that you uh, will pick up a copy today. Uh, if you don't have the money for that, there's even some free copies there uh, if you just let Nancy know that as you're there at the, the table. I hope that you've been able to read the first chapter of the Believe book by now. I think it was a really great chapter filled with some really great stories. I was talking with one of the guys beforehand, one of the guys in the church, and he says, man, that's just a great story. I love about that story about Elijah. Uh, you know, I love that story. Uh, about Joshua after they've gone into the promised land and so on. We're going to look at some of these stories today. Uh, the point of this first chapter, of course, is to help us understand that the God revealed in the Bible is the one true God of this universe. He's the author of creation. He is the only God that we need to worry about getting to know. Uh, so I uh, hope that you're doing that. hope that you're growing in your faith and in your awareness uh, of God himself. The whole point of believe this whole series is for us to come to greater confidence in our faith. So as we start kind of figuring out these things, you know, we figure out, you know, kind of a foundation for all of this. And as we figure out the, the nuts and bolts of things, as, as we're piecing things together, our confidence in our faith grows and grows and grows. And it's a time process. It takes a while. It's not immediate uh, for these things to happen. Even to come to faith is not generally immediate. Uh, that some things have to happen in our lives. And so we want to figure out during this belief series what we believe and why we believe it and, and uh, come to a faith that is our own, not simply the faith that our parents or maybe somebody else gave us. Um, because otherwise you get to be these guys' ages and about 16, 17, or 18, you start thinking, what, what is my faith really? You know, Mom and Dad taught me certain things, but what do I really believe? What do I want to live by the rest of my life here on earth? Perhaps you never wrestled with these things. Um, and, and now you're going to. Now you see the importance of this. And we want to invite you in. We want to draw you into this study. And we don't want to uh, make any conclusions for you. We're not going to draw those for you. We're going to just put the information out there and put the word of God out there. And you will start drawing your own conclusions from that. We will state emphatically, even as has been stated this morning by our brother Prosper, that we believe this. But we know that you're maybe still coming to believe it yourself. So any struggles, any doubts, any questions that you have are certainly uh, free game here. And, and we even have some little forms. You can fill out a question anonymously and, and say, what about this? You know, Here's where I'm having this problem. And I've gotten about a dozen of these already, and I'm going to try and answer a few of those this morning. One of the great stories in chapter 1 is the story of Joshua, the Israelite leader who took over when Moses died. And remember, Moses is the man that God sent back into Egypt in order to rescue his people from bondage to the Egyptians. They've been held for over 400 years, and God says, time's up. Let my people go. And through Moses, that message is communicated to Pharaoh. And they are able to get out after God sends ten plagues upon the land of Egypt, which coincidentally address the ten gods of the Egyptians and show that God had power over them. 
So they leave Egypt, they get over to uh, the promised land eventually after many years of wandering in the desert because of some disobedience of their own. And they are now to the border, now ready to go in. And Moses dies, and he turns over the reins, the leadership of the Israelites, to a guy named Joshua. And Joshua takes the people then across the Jordan River into this land that has been inhabited for generations by the Canaanites and other nations, fierce, godless, barbaric nations. God had given them opportunities to believe, but they refused, and now judgment was coming upon them. And they are driven out of the land, and the Israelites inherit the promised land that had been promised to Abraham generations and generations before this time. And after they begin to settle into these towns and regions that God had given them, Joshua calls all the people together. And he gives them kind of his final pep talk. He says, you know, this is great what has happened. God has done these marvelous things. But now we must be faithful. Now as we inhabit this land, as we live for God, as we are raised up as the people of God to, to kind of show peace God to the world, we must be sure about who we believe in. And Joshua challenges his people to think about their future and to make a clear choice about serving God. So now if you have your belief book, turn over to page 19. Page 19. And he challenges the people here to think about God, to make a clear choice for God. And this is what he says at the end of his speech. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from that land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. I'm not sure Joshua buys this because notice what he says. Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. He's a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. And if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he has been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, No, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they replied. Now then, said Joshua, throw away the foreign gods that are among you and yield your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and obey him. So in this speech that he's made, Joshua has reminded them that God has provided for them all the way through, from in, even through slavery in Egypt, through all the experiences of the wilderness, now as they've come into this land, he's given his protection to them. And they have defeated armies mightier than their army. He has shown to them his absolute faithfulness to his people in spite of bouts of disobedience and rebellion that they had. 
And then Joshua puts down this challenge. He lays it down. Choose today which God you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people, thankfully, all respond, us too. That's how we're going to live. That's who we're going to believe in. And he presses them to make a choice. And three times they choose God. Now what about you this morning? Let's make this really personal. Do you believe in God? Do you believe that the God of the Bible is the true God? The only true God of this universe? Surveys today say that 74% of Americans at least still say they believe in God. Some polls said the average grew up to 92% of Americans say they believe in God. Now, what they mean by God is very different things. But they believe there is a supreme being over them. Very few people in the Old Testament, during Joshua's day, gave any evidence that they didn't believe in God. They believed in a God or in gods. In the Old Testament era, the question wasn't, is there a God? But which God is greater? And they thought they would know the answer because when two armies would come against each other, whichever army won, the gods of that army must be the greater God. And that's how they proved things in that day. Even in the chapter we read and believe this week, there is another contest. A contest between gods. It's the contest that the prophet Elijah put before wicked King Ahab and Queen Jezebel when they had, had led the nation of Israel into sin. And so Elijah says to King Ahab, as you remember this story, let's have a contest to see who the true God is. You bring the 450 prophets of Baal, the 400 prophets of Asherah, and you bring them all together on Mount Carmel. And I'll show up, and I will meet you, and each of us will build an altar to our respective gods. They'll be, build altars here to their gods, uh, and then we will call down fire from heaven, and whoever answers, the God who answers with fire, he is God. And King Ahab says, I like that. I like that plan. Let's do that. So they call all the people together. They bring in all the prophets of Baal and Asherah. And, Mo, and uh, Elijah shows up. And the altars are sitting there. And Elijah says, okay, you guys go first. We'll let you try first. They build up their altar. They put their uh, sacrifice on it. And they start calling on the names of their gods. To bring fire down from heaven. And goes all morning, nothing happens. Goes all afternoon, nothing happens. They start slashing their bodies with knives and lances to try and get their God's attention. And the God is deaf. The God is, is no answer comes. Reason being, there is no God to, to come. There is no answer to be given. And they have believed falsely in something that doesn't even exist. And they get to the end of the day, almost to sundown, and Elijah's taunting them. You know, we just call a little louder. Sing a little more. Cut a little more. You'll get him. And nothing happens. He said, okay, people, come over here. He calls all the people over to his side of the mountain. And he repairs the altar that has been broken down. It's an old altar. Nobody's uh, worshipped God on that altar for a long time. He piles up these stones. And he puts wood on it. And he puts a sacrificial bull on it. He kills a bull and lays it out on this altar. And he had men come along with four large jars of water. And he says, uh, let's, let's make it really hard here, really difficult. We want people to know for sure who the true God is. And so they douse the altar with water. And he says, that's not enough. Fill them up again. Fill them up with the jars. Fill, again. fill it up a third time and just cover it all. Saturate everything. And then Elijah prayed a very simple prayer to God. Page 21. 
in believe. Right at the bottom of that page, 21. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and he prayed. It's a very simple prayer. Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so that these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also looked at the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God! The Lord, He is God! What a, what a tremendous scene. Thousands of people falling on their faces. The Lord, He is God! Now we know! Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let anyone get away. And they seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them. People today worship and revere many gods. Whether they're the gods of someone from the past or gods of their own creation, you know, I think it's instinctive in us to worship. We look for someone or something to worship because it's in our hearts. It's built into us by the God who created us. Do you know, not all gods can be true. Not all gods can be real, can they? In fact, there must be one God on top. Even if we were to allow that there may be other gods around there, which I'm not willing to allow, but let's just let's go with that. There has to be one at the top, doesn't there? There has to be one that is more powerful, one that is stronger, one that is mightier than all the others. Who is it? What do you believe? Do you believe that the God of the Bible is the one true God of this universe? 2007, the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life conducted a survey that discovered that amongst Roman Catholics, mainline Protestants, and Orthodox Christians, 25% of them, one in four of those church members, had doubts about the existence of God. Wow! One in four going to church. Church members, not even sure about the existence of God. The survey also showed that among Jews, the ratio was 6 out of 10 don't believe there is a God. Now understand, these are people who belong to a religious group. These are people who belong to a church or synagogue. They support a ministry financially by their attendance, many other ways probably, but they have doubts, big doubts, about the existence of God. Does that seem logical to you? Not to me. But maybe that's just where you find yourself. Let's be honest. Maybe you go to church a lot of times in a year. Maybe even every week. And still there's this nagging doubt. I'm not really convinced. I'm not really sure. I'd like to be, but I'm not. Do you believe in God? Do you believe that the God of the Bible is the only true God? One of the questions that was given to me by someone was this. Why is God described as jealous? That's such a negative human trait, you know, just a human emotion. Why is God jealous? Because we read in here, God is a jealous God. What it's saying is that the, the, the Bible has the Ten Commandments in it, and in the Ten Commandments, God gave these, these certain things. This is the way I see it. This is the way I want it. This is what you must believe. And one of them was this. You shall have no other gods before me. And you 
shall not make for yourself an image, an idol. You shall not bow down to that idol to worship it, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. It's not that negative emotion that you had when somebody else got a new car when you couldn't, or you know, when somebody else showed up with a new outfit of clothing and you couldn't afford that. It's not that. God alone is God. And he knows that he is the only God. But man foolishly puts his faith in many false gods, gods who are not gods at all. And God is jealous of our worship and devotion because we're, we, he knows that he's the only one worthy of our worship and devotion. It's not because he needs our worship and devotion, because he wants us to know the truth. He wants us to live the truth. And since God alone is God, he jealously protects his rightful place in the universe. hope that makes some sense to you. Since the beginning of time, God has been interacting with men. He has chosen to be part of our lives. He went to Adam and Eve, of course, in the Garden of Eden. And down through the years, God, at different times, has intersected with man. He's interacted with man. And God has wanted to do this because he wants us to know the truth. He wants us to know him. And so he's left behind a lot of evidence. He's given us evidence of his existence, of his attributes as the creator, which we can explore, we can investigate, we can research. We read this week and believe, Psalm 19, it's on page 16, that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There's no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. So everyone has this evidence of creation. That behind creation there is a creator. Behind the design as intricate, as massive, as beautiful, as majestic as is, there is a designer. The evidence is there. In Romans 1, the Apostle Paul was writing about those who deny the existence of God so they can go on being wicked and godless. And he wrote in Romans 1, 18-20, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. There's evidence. There are other kinds of evidence that God has left so that we can believe. Not only that he exists, but that he takes great interest in man and what we're doing. Next week we're going to discover that God is a very personal God, interested in each of us personally. In all of us, he's interested. And this evidence includes a lot of things, like he gave in Joshua's speech, the protection of God, the provision of God. One of the greatest evidences of God is this book, the Bible. We believe this is the inspired word of God. That means that God gave us this book. It's a revelation of him, a revelation of himself and of his will. It was written by about 40 different writers over a period of about 1,500 years. And these writers, we believe, were inspired by God to write what they wrote as they were told what to say by the Holy Spirit of God. In the Bible, God left testimony 
about himself, the testimony of his activities, of his conversations with man, of his messages for man. You know, many messengers were sent out into the world. Those things are recorded in here of what God said to make his will known. And we have a written record of it. But of course, the ultimate testimony is not a book. It's a person. His name is Jesus. The ultimate testimony is Jesus, God's Son, who is God, come to earth, taking on human form, to show us what God is like, to show us how God thinks and what God wants to happen. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says this, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he had provided purification for sins, that is our salvation, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So if you want to know what God is like, what should you do? Look at Jesus. It's really that simple. Look at Jesus. Study Jesus. Figure out who Jesus is, what Jesus did, how Jesus thought, how Jesus acted, what was important to Jesus. If you want to know what the Bible says about God, figure out what the Bible says about Jesus. And as you look at Jesus, you can start figuring out whether you believe in God or not. Paul says in Colossians 1, 15 and following that Jesus is the image of of the invisible God. In other words, he's, he's what we can see of a God who is spirit, God who is invisible. Jesus' physical man gives us an opportunity to see what invisible God looks like. And Colossians says that through Jesus, all things were created. In fact, all things were created by him and for him, and he, in fact, holds everything together. Jesus is at the center of this universe, holding it all together. And so getting to know Jesus is critically important to anyone who wants to get to know God. Take a long, hard look at Jesus if you want to know God. Now last week we talked about Thomas. Who is Thomas? One of the disciples of Jesus. Who after the resurrection was missing the day that Jesus showed up, presented himself in bodily, resurrected uh, form, to the rest of the disciples. And Thomas comes back, and remember, he doubted. He says, I, I don't know. I, I, don't, I don't believe you guys. Unless I see him, unless I can see the, the, the holes in his hands, and I can see where they, they pierced his side with a spear, unless I can do that, unless I can touch him, I'm not going to believe. And remember, Jesus showed up a week later, just comes through the walls, you know, he says, okay, here I am. And what did Thomas do? He fell on his knees, and he cried out, My Lord and my God. He got it. This was the same disciple who had earlier said to Jesus, Show us the Father, that is God, and that will be enough for us. Just show us the Father, and we'll be satisfied. And to this request, Jesus replied, Anyone who has seen me has already seen the Father. You see me. You have seen the Father. The words I say to you are not just my own. He says, rather it is the Father who's living in me who is doing his work. We read this week and believe about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This unity of God in three persons is kind of a stumbling block for some people. This idea of a trinity, we call it. It's not a Bible word, but it's a word that people have given to this reality 
that within God, the Godhead, there are three personages. Pers- there are three expressions of God, might be another way you could say it. And I don't have time to adequately explain that, but it's something you're going to have to keep studying and thinking about. I can point out that the Trinity is evident at Jesus' baptism, which we read about. For Jesus was here on earth for an eternal purpose, and it is launched, that purpose is launched at his baptism. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all present, all active, all moving in unison at Jesus' baptism. On page 25 of Believe, we read this from Luke 3. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. These three persons within the Godhead are acting in perfect unity here. Jesus is God's Son come to earth who's being baptized. And the Holy Spirit is coming down from heaven to give His power and authority to Jesus so that He can go on this mission, go on this purpose that He's come to earth for. And God the Father's voice is heard speaking His blessing. You are my Son, whom I love. With you I'm well pleased. Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Put all three of them together. This is the key verse for this week. Chapter 1, and it says simply this. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And in these three, we see these three expressions of one God. And maybe that will help us a little easier get our minds around this idea because God is beyond us. God is more than us. It's hard for our our finite mind to think infinitely. It's hard for us trapped in time and space to think of one who is not. But this is the this is the 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 struggle. This is the, the journey that you go on when you come into faith in God. What do you believe? That's really kind of the bottom line today, isn't it? What do you believe? Do you believe that the God of the Bible is the one true God? God came to earth in Jesus to show us who God is and to give his life as a ransom for our lives so that we could get back to God, so that we could be with him forever. Someone asked in their questions, why why did Jesus have to die for our sins? Couldn't God have come up with a less violent plan? You know, a plan that wouldn't have been so painful for Jesus to go through and still be able to forgive us? Well, certainly he could have done that. But I want you to see that Jesus coming and dying on that cruel cross at the hands of cruel men that he was willing to save in spite of their cruelty is a perfect expression of the God that we love and serve. He knew from the beginning that Jesus would have to die so that we could go free. God said that in this world there is no forgiveness except through the shedding of blood. Only a blood sacrifice can pay sin's penalty. But he loves us so much that he didn't want us to have to pay the penalty. And so he devised a plan whereby he paid the penalty through Jesus. A perfect man who literally died on the cross so that the penalties of all men could be paid, could be satisfied. The debt is satisfied. He did not protect himself from the pain. 
And even worse than that, the heaping of sins upon the sinless one so that we could go free. This is, this is the whole point. That God did what we could not do for ourselves except to go to hell. That, that's how you pay for your sins. And God said, I'm going to take hell for you so that you can go free. If you will believe. Now, God is not visibly among us today in person as he was in Jesus of Nazareth. And yet he has left us an abundance of evidence about himself so that we can believe in him and trust his word. Many, many gods today are being offered to us as a way to heaven or to life eternal or nirvana or whatever. God invites your questions. God invites your inquiries, even your doubts. And he's not hiding away somewhere hoping you don't know that he's hiding. He reveals himself through the word and through Jesus. Now John, whom we talked about last week, wrote a gospel, the gospel of John. And he said in John 20, 31, that he wrote it so that we could believe. He said, I could have written a bunch of other stuff, but he says, I wrote these things so that you could believe in the name of Jesus. You could believe in the one God sent. And by believing, you could have life, eternal life, in his name. The Apostle John put a lot of emphasis on believing. If you read the Gospel of John, you'll discover the word faith or believing uh, many, many times. In fact, uh, John writes the words belief or faith twice as many times as the other three Gospels combined. <laughs> he, you know, it's very, very important. He's the one who said a verse that you probably all know, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. He also said in John 3.18, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Now John believed what he was writing about. John was staking his life on it. He had lived with Jesus for over three years. He had watched him perform miracles. He had heard him teach. He had watched him heal the sick. He watched Jesus die, and he saw him after he rose from the dead. And John was declaring to us the faith that we have in God, a faith that makes us who we are, a faith that transforms us and changes us. In fact, you cannot be a Christian if you do not believe that God exists and that he sent his only begotten son to die for your sins. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is a very exclusive claim. That's saying that there's no other way to heaven. There is no other way to be justified. There's no other way to be saved but Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, if you don't believe in me, you will die in your sins. So this, this thing today, God is the only true God. He's the only Savior. We're going to talk about salvation in a few weeks. This is critically important because this is the difference between life and death. This is the difference between heaven and hell. And this is the beginning of our quest for greater faith. Joshua said to the Israelites, Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So what about you this morning? Do you believe in God? Do you believe in the God of the Bible? Do you believe he is the only true God? And if not, what would it take for you to believe? We're not going to force you 
to believe. We're not going to draw conclusions for you. You must draw those conclusions as you examine the evidence and as you read the testimony of those who testify about God at risk of their own lives. Most of them gave their lives because they believed this. And you must do that, make this conclusion after you learn about Jesus. God come to earth who gave his life so that we could be set free from sin and death and hell. This is the question we invite you on this quest. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the time that we can go to your word. I thank you for every person in this room. You know them. When I don't, you know everything about them. You know their thoughts. You know even what they were thinking as, as this sermon uh, was shared today. As your word is declared, as your word is read, as your word is revealed to our hearts, we open up to you. And we ask, Lord, that you would would speak to us individually, that you would answer our questions as we ask them, that you would uh, relieve those doubts that may be nagging at us right now. We'll do the work that we need to do, and we will be open, we will be humble, we will be transparent, we will be honest in our search for the truth. Help us, Lord, just to see Jesus. Jesus can answer all the questions that we may have. And I pray for your blessing to be upon everyone uh, in the sound of my voice today, that they would draw near to you. Through Jesus.